You are listening to the sermon podcast of Connection Church, a gospel-centered community on a mission to make much of Jesus in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. For more information, visit SiouxFallsConnection.com. Thank you for listening. All right, well, join me now in Revelation chapter 21, and I want to invite you there, and as you make your way there, it's the second to the last chapter of the entirety of the Bible, and so if you've got a Bible or an app, um, you'll make yourself to Revelation, make your way to Revelation 21. If you've got a paper Bible, just go to the end, find the maps, and start working your way back until you get to a, a chapter that says 21. Now, now, for us, this is the last of the stories of the entirety of the Bible, and for the last several weeks, we've tried to, as is our custom, uh, on a regular basis, to stop and, and think about what it is that we believe in as a church. And so I want to invite you into kind of like a family conversation of who we are, to think about, as we've said, our DNA, like who are we as a church, what is it that we believe, and why do we believe it? What is it that we exist for, and, and why is that the case? And so if you're not a believer in this, or maybe if you're not a Christian, you wouldn't call yourself a follower of Jesus, I'm especially grateful you're here. In many ways, you're the reason we exist, and so I'm glad that you're here. Uh, But even if if you're not a covenant member with Connection Church, I want to invite you to eavesdrop. If you find yourself with skepticism or cynicism, like, hey, what's What's all this about? I'm grateful for that question, and I I want you to, to begin to ask those questions as we look to the end of the story to see why it is that we value the the story that is throughout the Bible that we call the gospel, the good news of what God has done for us, redeeming his people in Jesus Christ, the community that is the church, the people set apart now because of the way they've been transformed by this story. And what we'll see today is the mission that is the purpose that we now have as a result of being enthralled and mesmerized by this story, invited in to be the community that bears witness to it in the world. And that is our friend, my friend, our purpose. So I'm going to skip through parts of chapter 21. I'm going to read As John gives us a vision of the end of things, there are themes that are throughout the entirety of the Bible, and they're all packed in here. I could spend months just walking through each one of these little pictures that John uses as an analogy for what God has given him as a vision of the end of things. But I want to draw our attention to just a few and see how pervasive they are in the Bible. So I'll read... uh, Verse 2, we'll skip over uh, to, whoop, I marked it in the wrong Bible, and then, uh, and then we'll skip all the way to verse 22, and we may, maybe we'll read verse 9 anyway. Verse 2, verse 9, and then we'll jump into 22 and read to the beginning of chapter 22. So Revelation 21, beginning in verse 2, and I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Verse 9. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And now down to verse 22. And I saw no temple in the city. For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, 
And the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day. And there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed. But the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. When I close that reading with verse 6, he said to me, this is my prayer for us, these words are trustworthy and true. My prayer is that they become the very words of God for even us in this room. The end of the story, as we saw last week and the week before, is that God redeems a people for himself and fills even their midst with his very presence. Now, the point of the entirety of the book of Revelation is, and you'll even see in the exhortations in, verse, in the verses following in chapter 22, is that Christians, people who had been, their names written in the Lamb's book of life, would be encouraged to persevere in the midst of difficult times. At this particular time, the, the Christians reading this were enduring persecution. In fact, at this particular point, Jerusalem had been sacked toward the end of the first century. And so they, they were experiencing a great deal of uncertainty, loss, and even the beginnings of the worst persecution that the Christians would have faced, I would argue, in the last 2,000 years. And the purpose of the book of Revelation is to say, persevere, endure, hold fast, don't lose hope. That You are a part of a story that will not end in destruction. You are a part of a story through which God is redeeming all the nations and making all things new. And this is the story, the good news, that through Jesus Christ, all that's broken is made whole. All that was dead is now made alive. All that was in decay is experiencing renewal. And this story has captivated us. In the same way that Jesus did not stay dead in the tomb, so also will all that's dying and decaying and broken in this world not remain dead. But in Christ, they will all be made new. Death will have no grip on it. Sickness, disease, thank God. Decay, suffering, injustice. None of these things will have a hold on this new creation because Jesus is making them all new. We saw last week that that means that now there is a, a special 
identity that is given to the people captivated, transformed by this story. This holy people. And we saw there's kind of a couple of things that will mark them. And the first one we saw last week is the very presence of God. Now this is important because as a people of God, we are marked by God's presence, not by our, and remember we saw this with the, with the apostles, not by our intelligence, prowess, prowess, coolness, thank God. We're not known for these things. We are known because miraculously, in spite of the lack of all the things that the world would love, God is present with us and doing things that don't make sense. They confound the imagination. And that's the story of the entirety of the Bible. That God, creating people in communion with Him in the garden, rebelled against Him, wanting to experience pleasure, joy, and growth without His presence. Essentially, I can live independent of God. I don't need Him. That's the first sin of the Bible. And then the first way that that gets expressed, we see the immediately following as they're banished from the very presence of God, even though God doesn't abandon them, they, they continue to find and look to other things for joy apart from God's presence. And one of the main stories is the story that begins in, in Genesis is the Tower of Babel. There's a story of the people who are like, okay, we don't need God for advancement. We don't need God for progress. We don't need God for pleasure. We can do this ourselves. We can achieve all that God would give us by ourselves. We don't need him. I point that out because what you see restored here, the very presence of God with his people, him to dwell with them, is one of the most confounding and I would say even offensive things to the modern secular narrative. Namely, that you don't need God for enlightenment. You don't need God for joy. You don't need God for hope. You don't need God for pleasure. But I want you to see that's not new. Oh, sure, we've got a new spin on it. Our new kind of post-enlightenment autonomy is a new and, and kind of cool version of it, but, but it's nothing new. It's, it's one of the first things, according to the story of the Tower of Babel, that people have been doing from the beginning, is they want joy apart from God's presence. And yet, what do we find here? Ultimate fulfillment is in God's presence. It's one of my favorite stories in the book of Exodus that after God's people are delivered and they begin to rebel and God says, I'm going to deliver you and give you this promised land and, and Moses in Exodus chapter 33 says to God, look, if you don't go with us, this won't matter. And so what do we find at the end of the story? We're a people marked by God's presence. Those who are drawn in to him, did you catch it? They have, they have God's name written on them here, and their names are a part of this book of life. They're people set apart by God's promise. But the second thing you see is that as what they're doing is that they're preparing, and they are a people with a purpose. And so while their pres the presence of God sets them apart, and you, you saw the last couple of weeks, they, they start to experience freedom from sin. They fight sin, and they, they begin to look more and more like Jesus as he is more eminently going to return. And then the second thing we see here is they persevere in their witness. They persevere in their testimony. A gospel-enriched community, people, who have been mesmerized by the story of what God has done will be a light. Did you catch that? Three different times in this passage to the nations. People mesmerized by this story cannot keep this story a secret. And the story of Revelation is how they persevere in their testimony. After all, they would have first 
received the, this, the, the churches that would have received this letter from John would have already experienced all sorts of persecution, but they were about to face even worse. And yet those who hold tightly to this story, endure in this story, knowing that it's trustworthy and true, will be a light to the nations. And it says that the nations, did you catch that? We'll walk by the light of this story. And what is that light? Did you catch it there as we just read? It's a light that is God and the lamp miraculously, mysteriously in this, in this light is the lamb. That is the sacrificial work of Jesus Christ on our behalf to win us back to the Father. So here's what we believe as a church. In light of this story, we are to bear witness to the nations of the good news of the victory of Christ. We are mesmerized by the story that God is going to, in Christ, save us, redeem us, and make all things new. We are marveling that now because of this, we are in his very presence forever and ever and ever. The city will have the, right, the same square cubicle dimensions of the holy of holies where only the priests could go. But now we're restored. We will live as priests in the unmediated presence of God. And then did you catch that in the very last verse that we read in chapter 22? Then we will what? Not only be priests, but we will reign with him. We have a purpose that is a light to the nations. We bear witness to the good news of Christ's victory over sin, death, hell, and the grave. But notice also what happens. The nations will join God's people in praising and reflecting the glory of God and reigning over the new creation. The nations. Now, we have to walk through the, uh, the language of the entirety of the Bible. That is that God's promise to redeem a people for himself that is, the people of Israel, the Yehudim, right? Like, redeem God's special people. And even the prophecy of the book of Daniel says that the way that God is going to redeem these people, and there are like two categories of people. There's God's chosen people, and then everybody else, known as the nations, the Goyim, right? So there's God's chosen people, and then there's everybody else. And yet, the prophecy of Daniel in other places, Isaiah 60 is like almost... Uh, word for word, some of the things we just read are right out of a, a fulfillment of the prophecy of uh, Isaiah chapter 60. But even in Daniel, it says that the way that God will redeem them, they're going to be like a tree, and the birds, that is the, the symbolic figure of the nations, will come to rest in its shade. That is, God is going to redeem his people, not because they're awesome, not because they're special. He's going to redeem these people so that they would be a blessing to the nations, the way he's going to save these people will actually be the mechanism for saving all peoples. People from every tribe, tongue, and nation will be blessed by this. And so now, people enthralled with that story begin to live even now as though it's true. God will redeem not just you and me, but the nations. And then you see some of these beautiful uh, pictures of what that will look like. We invite now the nations to be united in Christ because we know that the nations will be united in Christ finally. Look what we just read there. There's no temple in the city. The temple of the Lord God Almighty and the temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb, right? So, so even though like other places talk about a, a new temple, apparently the vision John has given of this new city is like the temple, even if it exists, is indecipherable from God's very presence. 
It's like there's not really a temple. It's not really a light. There's not really a temple. All there is is God and the Lamb. That language of the Lamb throughout the entirety of the Bible is the, the, the language of spilled blood, the language of sacrifice, atonement to, to pay for something. Now, I, I'm going to point specifically, maybe if you're in this room and you're, you're not a believer in Jesus, I'm so grateful you're here. And, and that probably sounds primitive and crude, but I want you to know that you believe this. Anytime something bad happens to you, just, just ask yourself this. Don't, isn't there something in you that says, someone better pay for that? Isn't there something in you that cries out, I want justice? That's all the rage at the moment in our current, in our current like social milieu, but I want you to see that. That's nothing new, friend. That, that comes from the very heart of God. And anytime you find yourself saying, I want justice, now imagine, imagine something horrendous, awful done to you or someone you love. Isn't there something in you that wants not just justice, not just someone to pay, but you want someone to hurt for this? Friend, that that's actually the reverberations of the image of God, the fingerprints of God on you and me to cry out for rightness, righteousness, justice, equity. And so this may seem primitive, but friend, you know this, if you'll admit it. In the depths of your own heart, when you're mistreated, when someone cheats you, don't you want blood? So friend, when he says the lamb, the sacrifice I don't want you to think, well, that's primitive and crude. No, it's the satisfaction of the deepest desires in our own heart for justice, equity, and payment. Someone needs to make what is broken in the world fixed. Someone needs to make what has gone wrong right. And we have good news. Christ has done that. And the temple, right, the, the form of worship or gathering, again, this may seem primitive, but it's just to say that we will find this payment and justice and satisfaction in Christ to be indecipherable from the rest of existence. The city has no moon. Not only does it not have a temple, it has no sun or moon. The glory of God gives all its light. Well, what's that light? Did you catch that? By its light, the nations will walk. This is why we invite the nations to be united in Christ to hear this good news because the way that the nations will be illuminated to experience new life is what? God in Christ. God in the atoning work of the very Lamb of God. Now he's hearkening back to the language of the Old Testament, but he's also hearkening back to, if you remember, the gospel he wrote where he was standing there when John the Baptist saw Jesus coming and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who's come to take away the sins of the world. And by that light, right, that satisfying light, that all that's in unjust is made right. All that's broken is made good. That's what will draw the nations together. And so we are the people that testify to God's satisfying and redemptive work in Christ. And we invite the nations to experience because that's exactly where we're going. The other thing I wanted you to see here is the, the language of holding fast to the testimony is it's throughout the entirety of this particular book, the book of Revelation, but it's also interwoven with what you saw here in that chapter. Did you catch it? The, the theme of a bride preparing for a wedding. 
This glory and honor right out of Isaiah chapter 60 comes to fruition in Jesus and his very presence. But if you go back to Revelation chapter 6, you'll see that the white robes that the believers are to wear are the reward for what? Their witness, literally the word martyr, that is to die for your faith, is literally the word we t- to say bearing witness, right? Cause, I mean, because think about it. If, if you'll die for it, that says something about it. And if you'll die for Jesus, there is no more powerful witness to the resurrection of Jesus than to bear witness to him even in death. Verse 9 of chapter 6 says, So when he opened the fifth seal, the altar of the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God, and for what? The witness they had borne. And so then they were each given what? A white robe. So their white robe, the garments that they were wearing, were a witness to Jesus and what he has done for us. Chapter 7, the same thing. He says, I said to him, sir, you know to the angel. And he said, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. They have persevered in their witness. Their white robes, their preparation. Chapter three, he speaks to the church at Sardis. And he even says, like, I know your works. You're doing great things. But now I want you to go and clothe yourself in white garments. Because I'm never going to blot out your name in the book of life. And he says, I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. Now he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, what's he hearkening back to? He's hearkening back to Matthew chapter 10. Where Jesus says, look, if you will confess me before men, I will, did you catch that? Confess you before the Father. So what is it that the church is doing wrapped up in this story? They are bearing witness. They're bearing witness to the nations and their white garments are are the reward, they're the emblem, they're the symbol of them holding tightly to the testimony of the victory of Jesus. And they're interwoven into the preparation of a bride getting dressed for the wedding. Don't miss that. Our current state of affairs, our purpose, the the local church currently lives in a state of preparation for the return of Jesus. And our preparation for that wedding feast is that we proclaim the gospel to the world. We bear witness to the world. Let me kind of wrap up on these ideas. Now, you know this is true. A bride preparing for the return of her husband right? Have you ever met a bride that didn't want to talk about her wedding? Don't, don't look around. Look right at me. There's no need for that. Right here. Have you, have you ever met a bride that didn't want to talk about her wedding? Because most of the time, isn't that what a bride wants to talk about? I've done a few weddings, I have a little bit of experience, and, and maybe this was even the case when I got married, but we, we like to talk about our wedding as though we're like the first people who have ever gotten married. Right? Well, friend, instead of disparaging that bride who wants to talk about the wedding, can you just stop for a minute? Can you stop for a minute and realize she's pointing to something? And her great joy for the great wedding, oh yes, maybe she's a bit narcissistic, right? Maybe she's a bit self-centered, maybe she's a bridezilla, God help that person, but 
Don't fault her for that. She's just doing something that God has created in all of us to do. Because don't you know, the, the, the very nature of a wedding, preparing for a wedding involves some important components, does it not? One of the first is the announcement, right? The wedding announcement. Now, there's a lot of variation how we do this. Social media is pretty well, I don't know, transformed the whole ordeal. But like, there, it's kind of a big deal to say you're engaged. You even, here's the, it, it, we're, we're getting better at this even. Like, at first, we, it was a big deal to hire a photographer at your wedding and then a videographer. Now you hire a videographer and a photographer just for the engagement. No shame on you if you've done this. Again, this is, this is something built into us. Because if this is something that's important to us, we'll announce it, won't we? And you send out invitations. Now, yes, there, every once in a while, we, you'll, you'll meet the person who wants to have a small and private wedding. But even then... Notice, the only reason they want it small and private is not because they don't want it to be public. It's because they want it to be special and they want to invite only a select group of people. And the same sentiment is present, right? There's a sense in which there's a value and power in this gathering of this feast. But here's something else that's throughout the ages. When someone offers a, right, a proposal for engagement, there's something that typically happens, some sort of a promise. Now, now, since the Greeks started this, there's what we would call an, an engagement ring, some sort of a ring, like a, a signet ring for a family kind of earmarked, let's say, for an engagement, uh, the exchange of covenant vows. It's like a, it's like a promise. Hey, I'm going to give you this. I promise you a wedding is coming. And you wear it. I promise a wedding is coming, Right? Well, friend, the New Testament tells us that we have the same thing. We have a promise. And the engagement ring that has seared and changed our hearts is none other than the presence of God himself, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is our down payment. And the very presence of the Holy Spirit to, to quicken our hearts to repent of sin, to, to enliven us, to see Jesus as Lord. This is the promise as Jesus has left his spirit to say, a wedding is coming. I promise it's a concrete investment that a wedding is on the way. Amos 4.12 says it this way, prepare to meet your God, O Israel. Paul even tells the Corinthians that he betrothed them as a bride. And so we, like any good bride, announce the wedding. We tell of the wedding. We invite to the wedding. We sh <laughs> we I'm Oh, girl, let me see the ring, right? Like, we, we show off the down payment for the wedding, right? I'm, no, again, no, if that isn't cool for you, I'm wearing a, a silicone one. I'm with you. It's not, it doesn't, it's not all it's cracked up to be. But, like, there's, there's tangible markers that we celebrate and say, look, a wedding is coming. Friend, the bride of Christ, the church of Jesus, marked by his very name on their face, called and set apart because their name is in the book of life, have an announcement for the world. The king is coming. A great festival is on its way. A feast is coming. A wedding is on the way. And look, the glory of the nations will be brought into it. The nations will be invited to this thing. They'll bring all the wealth, the glory, everything that they have, their best, will be brought in there. They won't be erased. They'll be evidently involved. Did you catch that? They'll be like looped into the glory of Christ and the brightness of the city. You can use biblical language. There'll be cedars from Lebanon, right? 
Think of the value of the ethne, the nations, right? There'll be diamonds from our our brothers and sisters from Botswana, right? There'll there'll be platinum from South Africa. There'll be cobalt from Congo. There'll be sugarcane, yes, from India and Brazil. There'll be copper from Peru. There'll be tropical fruit from Mexico. There'll be exotic birds from Uganda. Like all of, apparently, in some mysterious way, the treasure and glory of the nations will somehow be wrapped up and folded into the glory of heaven. It won't be erased. Evidently, will be included. And so, praise God, the glory of the nations, my own personal opinion. Maybe it's Italian food, Mexican food. You get the idea, right? I don't know, if we'll, I don't know what the feast in heaven will be serving, but thank God if it's, not, if it's not those things, evidently the glory of the nations, the aroma of the gathering of the nations will be so pleasing and beautiful. And so, friend, our preparation for that feast is that we proclaim the coming kingdom, the coming groom to the world. And friend, this is what the church is humbled by. Look, don't, doesn't it feel small when you think of yourself in light of all people in all eternity? And friend, if there isn't one thing that hasn't happened. I mean, if there's, hasn't over the last five, six months been a, a time where we've become more painfully aware of our frailty? Hasn't the myth of invincibility kind of been busted? Have you felt small? Have you felt, even at the very least, have you felt a little bit smaller, right? Have you felt at least a little bit less in control over the last five months? Have you felt at least a little bit like, oh, this is, whoa, my way of life is not as permanent as I thought it was. Tomorrow is and what I plan on for tomorrow is not as dependable. Isn't it also, like, haven't we been purged, or aren't we right now being purged of our obsessity with prosperity? I mean, isn't this a dose of humility? Friend, that's meant to be an invitation to see that God's glory is too big for you and for me. It's for the nations. So what do we do? We bear witness. That's our purpose. Our preparation is that we endure in our testimony such that, did you catch that, the nations are invited into seeing the light of the Lamb. That's what we do. And friend, that's the story of the whole Bible. It starts with people in a garden in communion with God. And they're next to a tree that granted them life. Did you catch what was there? Did you catch what was in the city? Flowing from the, from the, the very throne of God was a stream and the, a tree of life. And even though those people in the garden rebelled, remember what happened? God guarded the entrance. God made it such that they could not get back into his presence and to the tree of life. Did you catch what was, what was going on? Did you catch that? Right? The, the gates are always open. The gates are always open. They're never shut, verse 25 says, by day. As if to say that our access because of Christ to life is unbridled, it's unfettered. Remember Babel? We want progress without God's presence. And that desire for progress without his presence always scatters his people. Remember how this is coming back to play where they were scattered in their their ethnicity and language. But what happens in Acts chapter 2? 
Because of Christ, the Holy Spirit, here, the engagement ring comes and does what? Draws the people of the nations of every single different language and they hear the good news of God's glory in Jesus in their own tongue. And the people are gathered in. Through their language? No. Through the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is the down payment for the wedding feast of the Lamb. It started with God's presence. It was scattered apart because they rebelled against it. And now we see here in the end, it's gathered together in His presence one day fully and completely. The gate's no longer guarded. And there's peace among the nations. Notice Adam failed to subdue what God had granted him. And yet Jesus succeeded where Adam failed to do what? At the very end there, to invite us to share in the success of reigning, subduing over what God granted to us. And we respond in worship and experience the presence of God in it. This is our act of worship. This is our response. We make much of Jesus who has restored us to right fellowship and communion with God. So, how do we respond to this? Now, in one way, I want to point to you every single week we do this, right? Every single week I offer some affirmation and assurance of God's love for you in Christ. And I say something. I told you about this when we went through the book of Acts. I say, you know, God loves you. I love you. Affirmation. Like, because of Christ, you were loved by God. Now you are what? Dismissed. Okay? And we talked about this in the book of Acts. Some of you know exactly where I'm going. Where'd that come from? All you word nerds are excited right now like me, right? Your grammar nerds are jacked, right? It's from dimitero or mitio, dis, dismissio. Did you get it? You are now, it's as if to say you are dismissioned, right? I just made up a word. You are sent to mission. Like, think about it. Like, you've, you've heard that Jesus is good and he's going to redeem the nations. Now, you're dismissed. Now, here's where, here's where we play dumb. We go like, well, I don't know what to do. Yeah, you do. Don't play dumb. For example, if I said to you, here's one for you. I have the cure for the coronavirus. You're now dismissed. You'd know exactly what to do, wouldn't you? You'd say, I know someone with the cure. And you'd go to the people who are most vulnerable and most in danger. You'd go to the people most in need of the cure, the people who are sick and the people praying for healing. Right? You would know where to go. Friend, God loves you in Christ and has drawn you together and inviting you to a wedding feast. Now, you know what to do. You know what to do. And if you don't, find some lovely couple who is engaged to be married and ask them about their wedding day, and they'll tell you. So, weekly, we, we've... We engage in this liturgy, right? Good news, go. Go tell. Invite into the, invite the nations into this. And as a church, we invest in this. And so today, we get a special way that, as a regular occurrence for our church, we get to invest in, pray over, and see what God's doing in the nations. And so today, I get to, this is going to be our act of worship, to, to respond and, and pray over a couple. I want to introduce you to Mitchell and Emily Cooper. Before you leave, you're going to get to meet Lydia, Ezra, Isaiah, and Silas. Um, but if I can get my, my friends who are going to grab some chairs and help Mitchell and Emily, they're going to come up. And uh, Mitchell and Emily Cooper are, are preparing by the end of the year to go be a part of a church planting team in Kuwait City, Kuwait. And so we as a church have committed to pray for them, invest in them financially, and then Sit back and watch as the invitations go. And so I, I want to invite them up. They're going to tell us briefly their story. 
kind of what's brought them into uh, to where they are, and then we're going to see how we could be praying for them. So, Mitchell, Emily, do you have a, a, you have a microphone? Hey, man, good to see you. So, would you just, t- not Mitch. That's correct. You, you've outgrown that, I, I, I've heard. It's been 20 years. That's right. We don't do that anymore. Mitchell, Emily, tell, just tell us. Tell us, what, tell us briefly your story uh, and tell us ways that we can be praying for you. We're going to invite some other people to pray for you, and then we're going to respond together in worship. Yeah, Emily and I met 15 years ago, 16 years ago in China. We were both working with different organizations that um, were reaching out to college students. Fell in love, got married, have had some kids, and the whole time we've been married, um, overseas work has been on our hearts, and particularly for me, global theological education. So really, really long, fun, detailed story, quick. Uh, this time last year, a good friend reached out and said, hey, I got a brilliant idea. Let's move to Kuwait, plant a church, and you can start a theological training center for pastors. And I said, hey, babe, check this out. I'm getting punked. <laughs> I hadn't thought about Kuwait since 1991, 2004, something like that. It is obscure. It is small. World stage, it is rather insignificant. When was the last time you thought about Kuwait? Okay. Don't feel bad. I was in the same way. But Kuwait is a city-state of 4.5 million people, of which 75% fall into a category that the missions world would consider unreached. And by unreached, I don't mean that they don't have somebody tell them about Jesus. I mean that they don't know anybody who could tell them about Jesus. So you have a city stock full of people without hope, without the chance of hearing the good news of the wedding feast of the Lamb. At the same time, it is a city that is chock full of migrant workers from around the Middle East, around Southeast Asia, who have come to be a part of the work that is being done there in the oil fields, and then everything else that goes along with that. The vast majority of people in Kuwait, 60 to 70% are not Kuwaiti citizens. They are displaced. They are uncomfortable. They are riding out the storms of a pandemic away from home, away from everything they know that is real and comfortable and what they like. And so what has happened time and time again, the story we've been told is that you have a people in this city who have no hope of Jesus. At the same time, with this migrant population there, you do have solid Bible-believing Christians who love the gospel, who love Jesus, who are in Kuwait City, working their day-to-day jobs, sending money back, and they're there. They're looking for a church. So they go to the first church that they find, and one and a half percent of Kuwait actually is evangelical Christian, which you would think is great. But these friends of ours have gone to these churches, and they get there, and they're like, great, this is a church. Wait a second. What is he saying? Oh, that's not good. That's not right. So they go to the next church, find a church. Okay, go. Wait a second. What is he saying? So again, it's not that the prosperity gospel has found itself in the United States and it's just sitting here. It has been bantered about the entire world. And as far as we can tell, in Kuwait City, the evangelical Christian churches of that town fall into that category. We've had friends, we know people who have just researched and researched and studied the city and said, we can't find a gospel-centered church for you all to go to. So what are the implications? What do you do when that kind of situation has arisen? You start a church. You find the believers who love Jesus, who love his gospel, who are centered on the word, and you go and you give pastoral care and pastoral leadership to these folks. So my good friend Blaine and I, we're joining together with our families. We're joining together with our 
partners like you all to pray for the glory of God to be known in Kuwait City through the planting of a church among a body of believers who have been there, who have longed for, and who have prayed for a church for years. At the same time, if there's already a Christian population there, and it is, would you say, off-centered, off-base, you don't walk in and just kind of thumb your nose and say, see you guys. You love on them. You network. You say, we are here for you. We are for you. We are for the city. We are for the gospel. And we would love to do pastor's Bible studies with you guys, certificate programs, degree programs, to build up the church that is failing in Kuwait. And so we have a two-headed approach to this thing. We are planning a church, and we are starting a training center for pastors. And you all are going to get to be part of that. And we're so excited about that. Well, I asked you earlier, uh, give me a few things. Now, normally we would love, at the end of our service, we like crowd around uh, some church planners that we've sent out before. We all touch you, breathe on you, and pray over you. I don't feel like that's the right thing to do right now. Um, yeah, and so, I feel that. so I've asked, I've asked Mitch if you'd give me kind of three different things uh, that we can be praying for, and I've asked a couple people to come, and they're going to pray over, uh, over you as well. And so, would you just share those few things, and then I'm going to invite uh, Andy and Jazz to the stage, and, and they're going to pray over you. Yeah, happy to. Uh, so the three things that came to mind, my wife and I talked about it on the road yesterday when we were coming up. Um, we have teammates, Blaine and Kelly Boyd, who are right now in the United States. They are looking to be in Kuwait a little sooner than we are, but they're dealing with some residency issues. There's a lot of red tape that goes into leaving and moving and working in another country. Uh, Blaine is originally from the United States. His wife, Kelly, is originally from Brazil, and we love the diversity of our team, but right now being from Brazil is having a, a little bit of an issue. Um, and so they are working through a ton of paperwork to try to get there because they are ready, they're set. They've been in that part of the world for a while, but now they're in the States trying to get into Kuwait. So pray that doors would open. Blaine actually sat at New York City Airport last night waiting for an email that never came. Yeah. So he had to fly back to North Carolina where he, where he was hanging out. So pray, pray for Blaine and Kelly, residency issues so they could be in country soon. I'm going to let my wife talk about the second one for just a second. Well, let me follow yeah, up. Does that it. include you? Like um, the, the, the yeah. barriers of travel between here and there? Is that something we should also be praying for as well? Yeah, absolutely. So it's not a light thing. Blaine and Kelly are going to go in with residency visas on a work permit, and we can talk about that in a second. We're actually first year going to try the tourist visa route. Yeah. Having relationships between the United States and Kuwait as they are, we can get a tourist visa, no problem, hang out there for a good bit. First year, get acclimated, and then do the residency visa after that. So Excellent. for us, it'll, it should be a little easier. Then again, we've been living in Florida for a while. It's a hot spot right now, so we'll see if Kuwait's like, hey, All Florida, right. yeah, come on in. Yeah, no joke. <laughs> that hurt right here. That right now. Okay. Um, so number one, residency, the legal uh, apparatus that goes in with moving to another country. But number two, um, transition. There's cultural issues, setting up a home. Um, Emily, you want to talk? a little bit about the transition that we're about to walk into. Just specifically how we can be praying for you in that. Yeah, so just for our family, um, mm. that our kids would have a community as well and that they would grow in the love for the Lord and the lost and, yeah, that we would be able to transition as a family well. So, yeah. Yeah, and then particularly, pray for my wife, we are going to be transitioning from a public school family to a homeschool family, which we're going to love. It's going to be great, but it is a bit of a transition. It's so, 2020, man. Yeah. 
we're doing that already since March. That's right. Been, That's been going right. in that direction. So residency issues, um, transition issues, and then pray like crazy that the gospel of Jesus Christ would be known among the lost of Kuwait and that Christ's church, his bride, would be strengthened. I mean, it's all for not. If we transition really well, if we get in country like crazy fast, but the gospel is not known, Christ is not known, it is all for not. It is all for not if Christ is not known. Well, first of all, thank you for letting us pray for those things. Thanks for letting us be a part of that. And so um, I'm going to ask Andy, Jazz, if you guys would come up. They're going to pray for those first two things. I'll pray for the third thing. Um, And since we can't huddle around these people, um, I I would ask you to kind of dip into what might be your like charismatic roots. And if even from where you are, if you would just extend your hand towards them, uh, we want to pray for them. And, uh, and specifically for these three, these three things and, and pray and anticipate God answering these things. And then we're going uh, to gather together and before, before they are dismissed along with us, uh, we're going to worship Jesus and celebrate his resurrection and song together. So would you guys get us started? God, we pray for the transition of moving from one culture to another, that you would be glorified in the way that um, we move to Kuwait, um, even from Sioux Falls with these people in spirit, that we would be praying for them as they transition to homeschooling, that they would, um, the kids would find um, their, their church to be somewhere they can thrive and love, um, that they would be going into a culture with, with the gospel in mind, that, that you came from the comfort of the throne in Christ to um, the people that you want to save um, and let that be the thing that propels us and excites us for even something like a transition from one culture to another that can be not exciting, um, that you would do that in Jesus' name. God, thank you that your gospel is true, and thank you that the kingdom has already come, that we in this room even represent the nations that, that the gospel has already gone to beyond uh, a continent and an ocean away. And so I thank you that even... Even now, we, in our gathering, we testify to the trueness of your promise that you will draw the nations, and, and God, we are even evidence of that. And so in light of that fulfilled promise, I ask that what is not yet, the kingdom that has not yet come, the, the people that have not yet heard the gospel, the, those that have not yet received the, the beautiful invitation to the wedding supper of the Lamb, would you even now begin to make that a reality? I pray that I pray that you would bless these families setting aside their own lives for that mission. I pray that we would be encouraged by them, and, and I pray that we would even, as a church, be compelled to support and to love them, but also uh, be challenged to, to live on mission as they are. pray that you would bless this family, and may they be a family that's marked by the, the peace of Christ. May their home be marked by an assurance that you're never going to leave them or forsake them but instead you've called them to yourself. There is nowhere we can go, even with your gospel, that you are not already present. So even now, prepare a place that you would, uh, that you would encourage them. Let the, let the Coopers see that as they arrive, they, they come in places you've already prepared. They come to, to reach hearts that have already been opened, and they've come to reach and proclaim to ears that have already been opened by your Holy Spirit. We pray that these things would happen for your glory and your namesake, Jesus. Amen.